using philosophy to understand our city and to change it. This is Phi on New York, the podcast of the Gotham Philosophical Society, with your host, Joe Beale. To say that New York City is in a transitional moment has become commonplace, but what exactly does that mean? To get a better sense of where we are and where we might be going, I turn to the philosopher Michael Mincer. He is perhaps the most informed, active, and deeply embedded philosopher that New York City currently has. Dr. Mincer teaches philosophy, urban sustainability studies, and Caribbean studies at Brooklyn College, and earth and environmental sciences and environmental psychology at the Graduate Center, CUNY. He is the Associate Director for Public Engagement at the Science and Resilience Institute at Jamaica Bay, and he is on the advisory board of the Center for the Study of Brooklyn. He is the founding chair and president of the board of the Participatory Budgeting Project, and he is the author of the 2018 book, We Decide, Theories and Cases in Participatory Democracy. And if that wasn't enough, he's also an old friend. I'm thrilled to have Mike Menser on the podcast today. Mike Menser, welcome to the Fi on New York podcast. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Joe. Uh, it's a pleasure. This has uh, been a long time uh, in in preparation and, and hope uh, to have this conversation. Um, Mike and I go back a long time, graduate students at uh, City University of New York in philosophy. Um, Mike, uh, we have had some conversations, uh, multiple conversations about things going on in the city. Uh, recently, you have you know, an article you written about participatory budgeting, the Green New Deal. And an idea that you have spoken to me about is this idea of the logic of the city. And you have been talking about how it has been changing. And you were speaking to me about this prior to the pandemic. So maybe we can begin there. Um, what do you mean by the logic of the city? And what were you seeing that was changing? And in what way has the pandemic impacted that change? Right. So I think I, the essay that you're looking at uh, is on participatory budgeting and the Green New Deal and participatory democracy more broadly. And it was written and I delivered it as a keynote to um, my colleagues in Porto Alegre, Brazil. We're doing a partnership with the Federal University of Brazil at Porto Alegre on community, democratic community transformation. And this was we, we started this research project about four years ago and they came to New York and then I got to go down there. And what we were seeing at this time is this fight against the traditional development model that had really been dominant and is still dominant since the 1970s or so, where it's the typical logic, right, where you, a city tries to attract uh, investment investors, could be foreign investment, could be other investors in the country, uh, to build some sort of large-scale project which generates tax revenue for the city, employs folks, 
and supposedly improves the overall well-being of the city. And that model, which was quite dominant in the neoliberal phase of global capitalism from the 1970s or 1980s, depending where where you are, um, has really hit the wall, especially since the last fiscal crisis in 2008. And the sort of most tangible expression of that hitting of the wall happened in New York City when Amazon, um, the world's largest, most valuable firm, was touring the United States asking for bids, right, to put its headquarters. And it was going to pick two cities. And New York City put in a bid, just like every other city in the United States, practically. And New York City won the bid. uh, But then people were like, wait, what does this actually mean? What's this going to look like? And already political winds had shifted with the election of AOC, of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in, in, um, coming out of New York City, and at the federal level to some extent, because you had the, the, the first inklings of this Green New Deal, which is a different way of understanding how we do development. And so Amazon had actually pulled out and did not put the headquarters, originally we're, we're going to put the headquarters in Queens, um, Long Island City, down by the water. And the idea was that this model of of development, as rich as Amazon is, as many jobs as it was going to deliver, that model of development wasn't actually going to help the city with its primary needs. It was going to exacerbate the negatives of affordability, uh, especially in terms of housing, and a further inequality with respect to to high income and low income in the city, that that Amazon was just going to add to that problem. And we've seen this model of development really hit the wall because of the failures over the last, especially the last 15 years, but especially since, you know, especially since 08, of not delivering the benefits that it's supposed to deliver, increasing inequality, increasing the ecological crisis, increasing the, the negatives of growth with traffic, with congestion, with pollution. And then you throw COVID on top of that, right? And now cities are really having to think about what does reorienting mean after this global pandemic, which especially hits urban areas because of population density. And then also, though, because of the failure of this global economic model, but also the specific incarnation of it at the at the local city level, which is that traditional model of economic development. Okay, so... I don't want to like relitigate the um, the arguments and discussions of Amazon. Um, I mean, is in is is that still your view at this point? I mean, in, in kind of now looking at things in um, summer of twenty twenty one, was that a good decision? Well, it's irrelevant now because Amazon conquered New York City anyway, right? It, it conquered the region because, as we know. During the pandemic, Amazon hired tens of thousands of workers. Amazon expanded its logistical capacities. It became even wealthier, you know, as as a as a company. Bezos famously added, you know, ten, uh, close to ten, more than ten billion to his own portfolio. So even though New York City rejected the location of the headquarters, the operations of Amazon further penetrated the city and the region with its warehouses, with its deliveries. And there's been labor struggles over that. So I think that in some ways, 
um, the rejection of Amazon pre-COVID is in many ways irrelevant at this point because Amazon is now a power player in New York in a way that was inconceivable five, six, seven years ago. And the fact that we rejected the headquarters doesn't mean that Amazon hasn't moved in to, in a sense, shape the logic of the city uh, in terms of delivery, in terms of how we think about retail, in terms of how we think about essential workers, in terms of how we think about meeting our needs during these crises. So I think it's still important that the city not go back to this large scale skyscraper, tens of thousands of jobs model and the, uh, believing that that's what's going to correct it. And we're going to see this fight over Sunnyside Yards. That's the next venue in New York City where there is a large-scale urban development that's planned. Uh, we saw that model rejected in Sunset Park after a long fight. So that was another, you know, um, another rejection of that traditional business model. But um, certainly the city's going to have to fight it, but the city has many, many other things on its plate right now in terms of climate change and the pandemic that it's got to grapple with and not just the, the that usual development model. So I want to get deeper into this development model and this, this new changing development model. But before kind of leaving Amazon behind, um, this the way you've said that Amazon has, in fact, uh, penetrated the logic of the city anyway. Yeah. Or have they, from your perspective, have they done it? in as a pernicious way as feared a number of years ago? Or are they in some ways contributing to the new logic in the new ways that they are now a part of the city? Well, I think the the the, the fight over the HQ was about the fight over the logic of the city with respect to large-scale development and the projects of accumulation, right? How do large firms um, derive profits from locating in urban areas and the kinds of subsidies that they get, the kind of employment opportunities that they offer. Um, and you can see that with, you know, firms competing, uh, forcing cities or, or, or urging cities to compete for them to locate their services in different, in different cities, right? Um, and most famously, you have deindustrialization, which where large firms leave cities. You have the Rust Belt, you have other cities like that. Uh, and you see what what happens in its wake, right? Disinvestment, abandoned lots, you know, falling tax base, white flight, all these kinds of things. And 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 Black Lives Matter is highly relevant in this conversation as well, right? Because there's this lot, there's another aspect of the logic of the city with respect to security and policing. But I think that the way that Amazon has shaped the the logic of the city right now, and there's different, you know, we look at the history of cities going back a couple thousand years to, to Ur Lagash and, you know, Angkor Wat in Southeast Asia and the Mayan cities and, and so on. And cities have always had, they've always had a couple different logics, right? One is for, as places where different folks meet, different spiritual traditions, they're places of, of religious exchange, they're places of trade and economic exchange. There are places where new kinds of cosmopolitan identities are, are formed. We look at the medieval cities, we look at the industrial cities, and we see different ways in which these logics are playing out. There are always places where rich and poor get slammed against one another. So they're places of, of, and spaces of intense inequality. And there are also spaces of circulation in this broader sense, right? Circulation of goods, 
uh, inputs in terms of energy use, in terms of transportation, and all these kinds of innovations that arise out of it. What Amazon has done in this COVID phase is really changed the logic of circulation in cities. And we saw Uber and the ride sharing do that before, where there's this different way of understanding about how we move around space. And with delivery, that's a big impact, right? Because in the, 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 the downtown where people shop, the retail space, uh, even the restaurants with delivery, that kind of social aspect of the city gets shifted with all the delivery that happens both before the city, or sorry, before COVID, um, but especially intensified with COVID. And because of the power of Amazon to, to operate in that space, it also seizes a lot of warehouse space. It drives up those costs. That has big impacts on other kinds of businesses in the city, which I'm very interested in for, for other reasons. Um, but also in terms of the number of people employ, and that's, you know, Amazon is another low-wage employer, right? So yet another low-wage employer. So, and this is the kind of irony. Amazon was offering to, to pay 50,000 people at a high wage. We rejected that. We got a couple thousand at lower wages instead. So, you know, that's sort of a slap in our face, right? Um, but what I'm talking about here, though, is the way that delivery is going to change. It, it has changed the, the dynamic of the city on the circulation level. And you can see it in everything from emissions to pedestrian deaths to who owns the street. How do you know? How do we how do we negotiate that? Um, what do we do in the street? COVID has put these new intense uses around. Can we have social space in the city that we can you know that we can congregate in safe ways um, where people can get out of their apartments, where people can interact? And so there's a. I think it's a really exciting kind of confluence of fights that's going to happen with the street. We were talking a little bit about a recent article in our op-ed in, um, in the New York Times by former Deputy Mayor Doctoroff, who's the the, oper- the CEO of Sidewalk Labs, and the way that they're looking at the, the, the street with respect to the restaurants, you know, the open streets and the restaurants moving into that space. So we're going to see a lot of great fights over the, over, the, over the city street, and you're going to see Amazon in there. You're going to see people fighting over the car. You're going to see people fighting for decommodified street space. So this is another logic of the city with respect to circulation um, that I think we're right in the middle of as well, on top of the the fight or beneath the fight over the logic of development. And I think that's another thing that we can get into that about, okay, well, if you're not attracting large firms, how does the city create jobs or create wealth or meet people's humans and human needs? Deal with the ecological crisis. Deal with the health crisis, and that's certainly uh, that's something that I'm very interested in, and have a, and have a lot of thoughts about. Well, then let's let's hear them. Where, where do you where do you want to go next? Like, what do you think is the kind of the logical progression here? You've talked about the kind of the logic of you know, the changing logic of the circulation, um, how this is perhaps going to um, you know impact you know how we use space how do you line up the fights right right so again two there's two things happening with this logic right and we might and again there's probably four or five but two are the city generates economic activity who gets those profits who gets to collect the surplus the old traditional model said that external investor gets to reap the profits we attract the firm they hire people they get to keep the profits. The city subsidizes that, so the large firms recoup it. It's developers, it's Amazon, it's it's uh, you know, Wall Street before that, and, and so on. 
The other aspect of the fight here is who gets to shape the logic of the city at the ground level, at the level of the street, at the level of social spaces, at the level of the parks, at the level of the neighborhood. So I think where we're, and, and by the way, we of course we have to do this coming out of the pandemic, we hope, and dealing with the climate crisis. And the climate crisis for New York City is primarily one of flooding as a coastal city, as a city of islands, as a city of 600 miles of, of coastline. And it's also um, the intense storm, the intense rainfall event. We've had two where I live um, that uh, caused a little bit of flooding in my neighbor's house. Luckily, I ended up flooding here. Um, and heat, right? New York City has been lucky because our heat anomalies have not happened in the summer. They've happened in the fall and the winter where we've had these 15 to 20 degree, you know, above average days. When it happens in October, it's kind of exciting, right? It's 78 degrees on Halloween or it's 55 degrees, you know, the day after Christmas. If you get that in the summer, then you're in a situation like most of the United States is right now, where you're dealing with 100 degrees in the summer. So as New York City is, is, is trying to address these challenges of climate, which are the crisis is here, we're not waiting for it anymore. Um, how does it create a model of development that can deal with these challenges of the pandemic and of climate? So one way that it can do this is by the rearticulation of what it means to deliver public services and what public goods are alongside public space. So as someone who does research and works with a lot of the climate scientists, I was asked to join the mayor's office of climate resilience. They have a stakeholder advisory group. And this is, was started meeting right before the pandemic and has been meeting inter intermittently since. And there's a lot of environmental justice groups in this task force uh, advisory group. And the idea is that the city is trying to create an adaptation roadmap, how it's going to deal with climate over the next 25 to 30 years. So one of the things that's been really fascinating about listening to these environmental justice groups from the South Bronx, from Sunset Park, from the Lower East Side, is what do they want, right? What do they see climate resilience from their perspective? And of course, they want flood protection, but they also want decommodified public space. A number of them have said, look, if you're going to build something in the park, you're going to build new green infrastructure, you know, you're going to build uh, a new berm on the Lower East Side to protect us from flooding. And what we want to make sure is that we don't have to pay to access that space, right? We saw a lot of privatization of public space where in order to enjoy it, you got to pay for it. And you can see that Bryant Park. And Bryant Park has a lot of, you know, great social space. Uh, but there's also, if you want to go in other places of it, right, you got to pay. You got to pay 25 bucks to have a, have a drink to be able to enjoy that part of the park. So we're seeing this push of we want spaces that help us deal with climate and adapt to climate that mitigate the urban heat island effect, right, that are cooler, that have, that have shade, that have breezes where we can have the kids play. But we also want them as decommodified spaces. We want them as decommodified spaces. We want to pay to use those spaces. So from a city perspective, okay, well, why, why would we want to invest in these spaces? Well, we know from COVID that improves air quality, right? And if you're in a neighborhood with bad air quality, that made you much more likely to have a severe hospitalization with COVID. So air quality itself is a public good. It also helps reduce the urban heat island impact, right? That helps bring down energy costs because then people need less, ener uh, less energy for air conditioning and things like that to cool their buildings. And that helps the grid because the grid then is not as overtaxed on those hot days. So in a sense, public space can serve these economic 
activities, right? Serve as these economic activities, helping to cool, helping to reduce energy costs, helping to improve public health. But they're not really quantified as that. So how do we start to quantify those benefits with respect to public space? So we actually see public space and investment in public space as a economic benefit, as a actual a development, right? Not a material intensive development of having a lot of commercial activity there, but as socially beneficial in ways that have direct economic benefits with respect to reducing flooding, with respect to reducing the energy costs, and with respect to improving people's public health. So these, I think, you can see as a different understanding of the logic of the city as producing public spaces, public services, and public goods that increase overall well-being, and then also get you to some of those other issues around the conflict uh, of inequality, class, and race that have so dominated conversations around urban areas over the last two years as well. How do you see these developments um, impacting jobs, um, the kind of the economic prospects of, of individuals in the city? So the, I think the most direct impact of what I was just talking about in terms of jobs is with respect to green infrastructure. By green infrastructure, we mean putting plants and soil on roofs, which helps to absorb stormwater, which keeps it out of the sewage system, which helps to improve the water quality. Green roofs also help to cool buildings so that your energy needs are much less. They also enhance biodiversity. So there's places for the bees and the bugs and the birds to get their food. That has all kinds of benefits on the ecological side. So New York City, right before COVID, passed what some people call the Green New Deal for New York City, and it was 10 laws. And two of those laws mandate green roofs or solar on roofs for all buildings of a certain size, above a certain size in New York City. That's a jobs program waiting to happen. What's missing there is the financing for buildings to pay for those services, because you have to come up with a financing mechanism for buildings to do that. A lot of buildings can't afford that, right? So then what's that financial package look like where low-cost loans available to a building owner so that they can make their roof a green roof? So once we figure out that financing model for that, that's tens of thousands of jobs across the city because that's a very labor-intensive activity. And I've actually had students from Brooklyn College go onto those jobs uh, and work for some of these rooftop farm outfits, Brooklyn Grange being uh, one of the most notable. And But that sector is ready to explode. And there's a particular kind of skill set that's associated with it. And at CUNY, we're actually trying to create more programming around this. Sometimes it's landscape architecture, which is a very fancy job, right, with it, which is more high income. Uh, sometimes it's a much more, you know, uh, uh, manual labor type version of it, right? Where you're just installing, you're you're doing the lifting, you're doing the planting and so on. And we haven't even talked about urban agriculture. This is related to it. This is another big, big area for the city that a lot of folks are interested in. But I think that that's a direct economic uh, job program that's associated with greening the city. That's very labor intensive. That's akin to the retrofitting jobs too, because just so many buildings need it. That could be an incredible economic multiplier and job creator for the city. So you see this as a kind of a public works project uh, or like a, like a jobs program out of the original new deal. 
Yeah, the, it could be, you know, in the current infrastructure bill, which they're haggling over right now in D.C., there is the Civilian Conservation Corps reboot uh, that was first done by former governor of New York, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right, who actually started that program before he got to D.C. I didn't realize that, that there was a there was a job corps in New York state that that good old uh, Governor Roosevelt did before he got to the presidency. That's one way of doing it. And then that's basically the federal government pays the wages for that work. And that and then the the, the onus isn't on the building owners. That's another economic model. I don't know if that's going to happen or, uh, or not. The current bill for the Civilian Conservation Corps, as I understand it, most of that work, and that's for young people. So it'd be a, it would be an age limit. And that work would be going on in national parks, which and parks are very underserved in terms of deferred maintenance. Um, we I do work at Gateway National Recreation in Jamaica Bay. I've talked to them a lot about this. They're very excited about it. So that's though in public parks, which comes back to this public space. And absolutely, we want that to happen. But it would have to be a different type of job core that would do work in private buildings, right? That's a that's a whole other kind of operation in terms of how the costs are distributed. Um, but that's one way of doing it. You could have a, you know, some people call that the job guarantee. That's the more full blown version of it. Uh, we could definitely see that kind of um, that kind of program as a public works program. But again, you could do a more, uh, you know, I don't even how to characterize it. You could do a more private financing model of it, or it could be a public financing model, where there's just low cost loans to building owners to do that hiring as well. So there's different ways you could finance it. Is my point. Let me ask you, though, about the sustainability of this. I mean, we, sustainability is a, is a word that I want to hear you know, more about from you. It's a word we get used a lot um, in a kind of an ecological sense. But the sustainability of this kind of economic model and of the jobs that we're talking about. So like when the green roofs are made, when the buildings are retrofitted, what then? you know, um, kind of a training that presumably would have gone into this. Yeah. Is this yeah. a sustainable uh, labor program? You know, is this? Yeah. It doesn't get any more. Yeah, no, it, that's an easy one. Absolutely, it's sustainable for negative reasons. There's so much work to be done. There's so much work to be done. There's so many roofs. There's so many parking lots that need to be converted, either with solar above them or with green infrastructure. There, we're so behind on so much maintenance. And so, and depending, and certainly in the green infrastructure space, which is not a unionized space, by the way. So labor costs are lower for positive or negative reasons. I've had a lot of conversations about that too with folks. Um, unlike solar, which is trying to become more unionized, green infrastructure, a lot of it's not unionized. So there's certainly a near endless amount of work to do. So from that sense, you know, there's a, a, almost infinite number of jobs. And that's different from, for example, wind turbines, right? So right off, you know, where I live off of Nassau County, um, there's going to, they just do the permitting for a, a large wind um, installation of a wind, a series of wind turbines off Long Island. So that's not, I mean, that's some jobs. That's hundreds of jobs. And then there's accompanying jobs that are in the thousands. It's not a lot of jobs, though. That large-scale utility solar and large-scale utility wind, hundreds of jobs. After it's built, it's much less. So there you have the problem, right? Same thing with fossil fuel infrastructure, right? It might create a lot of jobs at the beginning, and then you need a lot less. 
green infrastructure, you got to build it and then you got to maintain it. It's plants. So there's continuous labor that's required for that sector. So in that sense, it's a job creator. It's just a question of how you pay for it, how you finance. Take me into sustainability more uh, at the Institute for Science and Resilience, Jamaica Bay. How does that figure into this evolving logic of the city? Right. So a lot of what I'm talking about comes not just from academic research that I've done, but from the other hats that I wear. So I'm the Associate Director for Public Engagement of the Science and Resilience Institute at Jamaica Bay. Jamaica Bay, if you've flown into JFK Airport, you saw Jamaica Bay. You may not have realized it, but that was there. And then there's the Rockaways, which are on one side are bordered by the bay, and the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Joey Ramone, I know you're a fan. Uh, Rockaway Beach. Uh, and now it's a, a very attractive folks. You know, New Yorkers from all over the place love to go down to the Rockaways, either to uh, to Fort Tilden uh, or to, to, you know, beach, uh, various beach streets there for surfing and, and all kinds of fun. So I work with climate scientists and government agencies to think about how do you improve the water quality in Jamaica Bay for ecological reasons? Um, and also, how do you help those communities around the bay deal with climate change as it impacts on the bay, especially in terms of flooding? So in that work, I really learned a lot about what, you know, we so often gloss over the city agencies and the state agencies and the federal agencies. They're the folks that actually do the work, right? A lot of times we'll talk about the elect official, we'll talk about the policy. We forget about the people in the departments and agencies who are actually doing that work, doing the infrastructure work, um, doing the work for the electric system or the drainage system or um, the, the bridges and the tunnels and the trains and all that stuff. So working with them and the challenges thereof, and this is more of an adaptation issue, right? How do you adapt to the new climate? And that's separate from the, the mitigation or the sustainability issue, which is how do we use less energy to do less emissions? How do we create less waste? Um, how do we use less materials? So that we're not overtaxing ecosystems with respect to the goods that we need, you know, cutting down trees or, or mining and so on. So I think that New York City, you know, one of the key things for the sustainability of the city is really to reduce its waste stream. Waste is, you know, a huge problem. That, you know, you see that in the beaches with all the trash and so on. All, obviously, all the negative impacts that has on wildlife. But I think that the, you know, when you look at folks in the city and the agencies and what they're thinking about, they're trying to reduce their energy use. They're trying to reduce the waste stream. Those are probably two of the most tangible sustainability efforts that you see. Um, and, and in order to reduce, reduce the energy use, you want to make buildings much more efficient. That's a big one. Uh, of course, you want to use less fossil fuel transportation as well. And then on the waste side, how do you actually, you know, uh, not just recycle. I think people are realizing that recycling is another thing that's kind of hit the wall. It doesn't really get us to where we need to get. Composting is much better, right? When you when you do organic waste and you make that into mulch or to soil, uh, there's been a lot of fights over composting in New York City. Thankfully, the composters won, and the city's continuing to fund uh, some of the public spaces, uh, city spaces that that the composting is happening. But I think that sustainability and the and a lot of the a lot of what I'm seeing, a lot of it, the initiatives you see around energy use and around the waste stream. What resistance are you encountering to this evolving logic of the city? And I guess I, I want to hear what you have to say on a kind of 
a couple of levels. I mean, what, what's the direct resistance? What are the the obstacles? Um, businesses are they getting on board? Are they uh, are they a problem? Are they an obstacle? What is what is going to slow this down? What you you know you you're you're painting a picture of in part necessity. The logic needs to change and should change. It would we would be better off. But what's keeping us from doing it? You know, so you've mentioned already kind of the financing of it. And so right. like, um, and maybe you want to kind of come back into that. But could you speak to what you're experiencing? I would say there, there's, there's probably four things off the top of my head. One is the financing. The other is the taxes, the way taxation works in the city. Who gets taxed? And that's related to the regulatory structure. What are you able to do on a certain rooftop, right? You used to not be able to do green roofs. The, the city has changed its laws completely on that. Now it's actually mandating green roofs. And that's going to help create the, create the change we're talking about. Um, we'd love to see more regulational changes and tax changes around the waste stream, by the way. But the other thing, let's start with the basic one, which is frequently one of the problems. And we can never really discuss it enough. And that's the education problem. A lot of people don't know about this stuff, especially on the economic side. So we actually created a new program at CUNY at the School of Labor and Urban Studies on economic democracy. What does public ownership look like? How does it work? Where has it failed? Where has it succeeded? What about cooperatives? What about workers owning their own business? What about consumer cooperatives? Like you see these food co-ops where consumers own their business and then have control over the business activities and, and, they, and it's much easier for them to orient it around the values that we're talking about. What about the ways of financing this stuff from a public perspective? Um, we have great organizations in New York City working on this and trying to spread this. The working world does it in a, in a small, small scale uh, setting with loans. Um, the New Economy Coalition is arguing for, for a larger scale setting uh, with respect to a public bank. So we really need the education to be fully up and running for broader public uh, knowledge, but also to educate those folks who are in city government, who are in state government, who are in nonprofits, who are in the finance sector, right? So they're aware of these other models of doing things because a lot of times people reject it because they've never heard of it before. They're not familiar with it. They don't understand where it's worked. And I've been teaching, you know, this the, the 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 first course in this economic democracy certificate. I've taught it three times now, and in this last class that I just taught, it was a lot of people who had never heard about it before, which was great. And a number of them, and these were city workers, these were people in new nonprofits. A lot of them were, you know, in, in their forties and fifties, um, and they were like, "How come we never heard about this before? This is ridiculous." They were they were offended, you know, like. Why, you know, this works, you know, and we're looking at it in different examples and, and, and so on. And they're finding out about, you know, the large federation of co-ops in Mondragon and what Quebec has done and what they've done in, in, in Tokyo with the, with the food system and what they've done in Northern Italy and what they've done in Brazil. And so there's lots of education work that needs to be done. There's lots of research that has been done. We need more research, but that's one of the basics. And that should be in our public education system. Right. That should be at CUNY. That's part of what a public university should do. And we're seeing more initiatives like this at CUNY, which is great. It should be in the high schools. You know, we haven't talked about participatory budgeting, which is where, you know, the residents of a city have a say over how part of the budget is spent. We worked hard at the participatory budgeting project 
to get participatory budgeting in the high schools of New York City. And before COVID hit, it was in, I have the number, uh, make sure I get the number right. Um, before COVID hit, participatory budgeting was in 56 high schools in New York City. Sorry, 57, 57 high schools. That's great. That's thousands of kids who are realizing, wait, democracy is not just voting an election. Democracy is we get together, we identify a problem, and then we create a solution to solve that problem. And then we have a pot of money where we can draw from to fund that project or that solution. So we got to change the, the, the way that people see democracy. Right now, we just think of democracy as elections and, oh, you know, Wow, is that a whole very tense thing around elections right now? Um, but this kind of participatory democracy that we're talking about implicitly, hadn't mentioned it explicitly, but this kind of collaborative model where it's not just you having a voice, it's sharing power, right? And it's having a power in decision-making. It's having a power in, in, in how money is spent. It's having co-ownership like you do in a co-op or in a public bank. Um, and... We need education in that space. Then you need to change the regulatory structures of the city so that it permits this stuff or encourages this stuff or mandates this stuff. So we've seen this in worker cooperatives with initiatives from the city council that funds the development of new worker ownership models. And then the small business services then that helps these different small businesses, they need to become familiar with co-ops because they weren't familiar with co-ops. So what does it mean? There's more than one owner. How does that work? So it's a lot of nitty gritty work. It's a lot of nitty gritty work, right? Because there's vast bureaucracies in the city. And then the taxes, right? The tax situation. Um, you know, in New York City, all New Yorkers, 94% of New Yorkers are horrified by the subsidies that really rich people get when they buy apartments or condos in New York City, right? And these tax write-offs that they get. So why, how is that, right? Why, why wouldn't we tax folks who are buying properties and then keeping them off the market or not occupying those, those properties, right? That makes no sense. So that's a simple tax change. That's a simple tax change, um, which would bring a lot of different apartments, which are only invested in terms of speculation and make them more available to help uh, reduce. We haven't talked about, you know, so many things to talk about. That's the housing part. So I think for this stuff to work that we're talking about, you change the, you got to change the tax system. You got to change the regulatory structure. You got to change the financing model, and you got to you got to revamp your education system. You put those together, you're in business. Much of the conversation um, that we have had um, through the pandemics, the fights between um, uh, the city and the state, the Blasio and Cuomo, um, about taxes, um, the fear of driving out the wealthy, those who, in kind of the um, the preceding, if that is even the right word, logic of the city, of the logic of development, who amassed great wealth through capital accumulation, um, they, even with all the various tax breaks, nevertheless supply the city with enormous tax revenue. Um, right. So the fear is that you change this logic of the city um, you talk about uh, reforming taxes, regulatory reform, that you're going to drive away these, you know, this tax right. base. So right. are, you, are you saying that this is, uh, you know, we can avoid this problem? This is, this is a false dichotomy that's being set up here. 
Um, how do you know you, you you know? And again, this connects to something you were just saying before. You know about you know we need education, and you're encountering people who like you know have never heard of this. They're excited about some of the developments in, in economic democracy that you're talking about. Um, are you know, what about the people in kind of the tr- who are still in a sense existing and accumulating wealth in the in the more right. neoliberal logic, uh, who are right. can still doing this, how do you convince them to get on board? Right. I think. Look, I, you know, there's. I'm not sure what the percentage is now because of um, because of COVID and so on. But traditionally, you know, the the taxes of Wall Street income has been 25 to 35 percent of the New York City tax base, right? Um, and um, when it comes to the to the income tax, so it's absolutely true that high earners compose a significant portion of tax revenue when it comes from the, on the income tax side. I think that I and I kind of split with some of my 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 colleagues here, um, political my political colleagues here about just always wanting to raise income taxes on the top brackets, and I think that you have to do it and. And, and it's being done in a certain way, and there's this millionaire's tax and so on. However, I think the problem with that is that then you end up getting this competition among states, right, where people move, they move to Florida, they move to these other, other places, and we're hearing a lot about that right now. I think the tax problem is best solved at the federal level, and we're seeing federal action on this, right? And so I, I am uneasy – let's put it this way. I'm wary and, and, and want to be a little bit cautious by always raising tax, tax rates at the state level. I don't think you can just keep, you know, you should, I don't think it makes sense for the state to try and solve this problem through, you know, the, the over-reliance on taxing high incomes because of these other problems that you have with people moving. That I, I, I do worry about that to some extent. I think that what we really need, and there has been discussion about this, it, it's the tax haven problem. That's a really big problem. And it's the federal tax structure, right, of the 27% on, on income. You know, it used to be 90% after World War II, right, 90% above 120 grand. 90, 90. That's just so mind-boggling. Uh, and that was in the United States, right, the capitalist United States that was, what was about to usher in a, a huge economic boom. So I think that's best fixed at the federal level. I don't think states – you know the states do have to worry about to that uh, to some extent. So I I I I agree with that. I think the other thing though is around taxes when it comes to properties. And there's a lot of change. You know, housing advocates. I don't have all the names of the different bills off the top of my head, but there's a lot of tax changes that can happen around speculative real estate and also taxing buildings or apartments that are kept off the market. There are other cities that have done this. Right, so you don't have some somebody sitting on an empty apartment, right, waiting for the neighborhood to re, you know, to 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 get gentrified before you put it on. Makes no sense. I know in Pittsburgh, I used to live in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, if you sit on a property for more than a year, this is back when they had disinvestment. Um, they tax you like crazy on the apartment, so everybody was either forced to sell it or forced to rent it, or encouraged encouraged to sell it or encouraged to rent it. So there's other kinds of taxes, especially around property, that we can do a lot without, you know, worrying about people uh, being scared away from the city. Okay. I want to again push you before we get to a little bit more about economic democracy. Um, you've talked about um, 
in, in your writing about um, that to move towards a more uh, sustainable, resilient city um, that decarbonization is not mm-hmm. sufficient, you know, mm-hmm. that we need to, in a sense, de- you've used the phrase decommodify. We need to, we need to consume less. And again, I, I want to hear a little bit more, you know, about this, this idea that we, um, that we need to kind of dial back our consumption. So how this fits into our conception of a city like New York, um, where consumption seems to be part of the essence of the city in many ways. Um, could, you know, could you speak to that? How do we, how does a city like New York um, start to um, engage in what you have and others have resp- uh, referred to as degrowth? Which sounds right. frightening, right? To many right. people, right. and uh, yeah, no, I, I totally get it. Um, I think you know, as someone who moved to the city in '91, and my mom lived out, right outside the city, so I used to visit New York City every summer. And and I'm sure you know you you kind of have a, a, a memory of this too. And even when we were in grad school, right, there weren't big box stores in New York in the '90s. There wasn't actually a lot of stuff to buy. There weren't a lot of consumer goods available. You couldn't go and get new things for your apartment, or you know. Um, and and I remember when Bed Bath and Beyond moved into New York City in 1995, and people were like, "This is the end of the city." You know, it goes against the essence. We we don't want big box stores. We don't want this kind of suburban convenience. And the idea in the city was, you know, you had your little apartment. You didn't have much in it. You enjoyed the parks. You, you went to your restaurant. You went to your local pub. You went to your local playground. And it was those common spaces which really meant being a New Yorker, being in those spaces, right? You had your park. You had your subway train. Uh, you had your bus line. You had your school. You had your your facility that you, you would hang out in. And so I think that obviously with the rise of Amazon – and, and delivery and so on, we can now get these purchases so much easier and the convenience around it, it used to be really difficult to, you know, go buy something and then bring it back on the train, right? And having your character's thing, right? Uh, I can so vividly remember that in the 90s and 2000s when you had to go get something, you're like, oh, I got to go get a new pot and I got to bring it back. Um, and, um, and so the convenience of delivery just encourages this level of consumption. And, and I have a friend in, in the Department of Sanitation, you know, who's on a truck. And he was like, it's incredible how much just more trash there is per building since the last 10 years with all the delivery and then all the, the trash around that. So we got to reverse that. We, we live without it for many years. It, it, it was OK. We don't want to get rid of all convenience here. But. I think that the way that we understand, you know, a rich social life and, and look, Flosser has been, you know, railing against um, commodity capitalism before there was commodity capitalism. Right. You can remember, go back to Plato's Republic and Socrates versus Glaucon about the luxurious city. And, you know, when Socrates says, I don't want, you know, the look and back then the luxurious city was like having a couch. Right. And Glaucon's like relishes on your. Exactly. Socrates like, yeah, I'm going to sit on the floor. You know, we're going to, exactly. we're going to talk. Exactly. We'll sing songs even... and. Uh... Exactly. I'll have friends. Well, you have friends. You have family. You have your your park. You have your. And so, and in every, and it's interesting because in every tradition, in the political left, the political right, religious, atheist, ecological, 
there's in every tradition there's an argument against commodity consumption, against needless materialism, right? So that's not anything new. I mean, we've we've seen that forever. We saw it before capitalism. We see it with capitalism. We see it now uh, in the in the Amazonification, and 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 part of the antidote to that is the is the is having public spaces. It's having where people people can go to hang out with each other, to play with their kids, to hang out with their friends, and they're decommodified spaces. And we know what that looks like. It looks like a park. It looks like a playground. It looks like a beach. It looks like a, a bike trail or a bike lane, you know, and, you know, like where I am, you know, the kids still go to the mall. Why? Because there's not other places to go. Do they want to buy anything at the mall? No. They want to go and see other people and see, you know, and, and so we know what that looks like. That's no mystery. That's no mystery, right? You go to Europe, you look at the plazas, everybody's hanging out in the plaza. They're not buying, you know, blouses and, and new shoes. They're hanging out. They have a beverage. Yeah. Go ahead. Know, it, it makes me um, you know, think about the, the, very, the number of articles that I have seen over, I'd say, the past uh, 10 or 15 years. And maybe they like, preceded it, but you know, aimed at parents um, talking about um, – gifts for your children, give them the gifts of experience rather than the gifts of objects and material objects. They'll, they'll remember them more. Um, and it seems that this kind of actually fits right into what you're talking about when you kind of de, you know, decommodification, you know, it is, um, you know, it's not that there's like, we have nothing, but what you're investing in is, is actual, you know, is experience when you're talking about these public spaces is, um, you know, that's what you, should be going for, you know, is, is actual kind of the experience of being, you know, with one another, kind of having these kind of, I mean, experiences can be commodified too. Right. So, you know, there's the trip to Disneyland or the, or the, or or whatever. Um, so I, I would be a little careful on that, but, but yeah, it's a very, look, degrowth is degrowth is an economics term that's trying to get us to do two things. One is to quit seeking more inputs to consume. You know, we're cutting down trees, we're using water, we're using sand as the most globally traded commodity, right? Because it goes into cement, which goes into concrete. Um, so let's start using a lot less material stuff and try we'll, and, and do this, these kinds of activities and, and have these kinds of relationships with each other where we don't always need all this other materials to engage in that activity. And we know what that looks like. Right. We know what that looks like. People have been doing it for thousands of years. And it's the difference between going to the park and going to the mall and buying something. Right. You hang out in the park. You're not consuming anything. And and versus, you know, going and and hanging out with people and buying a, a variety of objects that you may or may not need. So uh, there's no mystery around that. I think people get scared about the concept of degrowth economically because they think then that that means there aren't going to be as many jobs. And there's not going to be as much tax revenue, which means we're not going to have as many services. And that's a legitimate fear because the way the economy is set up right now and the way that the political taxation system is set up right now is that's how it's set up. We do need more jobs and you need more revenue because if people aren't buying stuff, then your local jurisdiction is not going to have the money to keep the roads paved and to keep the school doing well and, and on and on and on. So we got to change that. We got to change that. And we were talking before about what that looks like. And it's about having a tax structure that is going to operate differently in terms of what it taxes, 
And then also about the city investing in things that does have these broad benefits that actually can save the city money on energy reduction, on improving public health, uh, and so on. We're getting near the end here, and and we haven't really spoken about um, uh, participatory budgeting or participatory democracy, um, strictly speaking. Um, and I, I want to give you an opportunity to speak to that and how, um, you know, what the differences are. Please, you know, tell us what the differences are, but also how, in particular, I suppose, partic- participatory budgeting in the city um, can be um, a vehicle for achieving some of the things that you have been talking about. Right. So, and it's a good thing you didn't bring up participatory budgeting at the beginning because I'm really angry right now. (laughs) And I'm really angry because New York City has the largest budget it's ever had. They're negotiating it right now. It's about $100 billion. It's about $100 billion. In 2014, the city budget was about 86 billion. So it has increased significantly over the last six, seven years. And even though the New York City Charter requires New York City to do participatory budgeting, because New Yorkers went to the the polls and they voted for it two to one to do it, the city is not doing this year. And it's 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 infuriating and it's offensive and and it's illegal. My son's like, you should sue. I'm like, well, <laughs> kind of busy, but um, maybe we should. So now why? Why care about it? So PB is a process, and it's a great example of what participatory democracy is and how it's different from the usual notion of democracy, right? So usual, demo- usual notion of democracy is there's election, there's a couple of choices, I pick one, they win or they don't, and then I hope for the best. And maybe I call them up and harass them about something that's important to me. Participatory democracy means I have a much more active enrollment, uh, active involvement in what's happening, right? So I don't just have voice, but I have power. I have I have more than just a voice and, and, and asking for something. So in participatory budgeting, there's a pot of money. That's very important. So right at the beginning, there's a pot of money. And the people who are impacted that money get to have a say on how that money is spent. So New York City has been doing it for 10 years now. And... The city council has done it for these first several years, um, and they put a, put aside about a million dollars of their capital discretionary funds. And then there's this multi-month process that happens where people meet. They find out about the process. They find out about what the money can be spent on. It has to be spent on – in New York City, it had to be spent on capital projects, not on services. So you can't hire anybody, but you can fix up the park. You can't hire someone to work in the park. You can add a new computer classroom to the school. You can improve the, the safety of an intersection in your neighborhood. So these kinds of projects. And it started off with four council members, and then it ended up being about over 30 council members, so over half the city council. And what it meant is that people have a say in how this portion of the money of the city budget is spent. They get to make the proposals. They get to work with city agencies to craft the proposals so that they're legally and fiscally uh, viable from the city's perspective. And then a ballot is created, and New Yorkers from that particular jurisdiction, in this case the city council, but it's supposed to be uh, all citywide in, in the new version of the citywide participatory budget. Uh, and then on that ballot, did you ever vote in a PB? Yes. Did they? You did, yes. So, and you'll see, and you'll go, and there's how many, do you remember how many proposals were on the ballot when you voted? Seven, 12, something like that? Maybe more? I, I thought it was around, actually, I thought it was around eight. 
Okay. And you get five votes. You had four or five yes. votes. Well, five, right? Um, and five. so, and it's, it's not a winner take all. So you have five votes, you pick your favorite projects. And then the, the projects on that ballot that have the most votes, they win the top five. Don't mean to interrupt. Well, I do, um, yeah. is, but I, I also want you to, to kind of note that, um, that this is open to particularly the voting, you know, it's not, uh, limited by age as the kind of the electoral voting is. Exactly. So in PB, the PB process is created by the residents of New York working with their city council people or with their government officials. So the, they got to decide, we got to decide what the voting age was, what the voting requirements. And so very early on, PB was open to folks who were not registered voters. As a matter of fact, they didn't even have to be citizens. Um and then the voting age initially was 18, and then it was lowered to 16, and then it was lowered to 13. And in some districts last time, it was 11, because we wanted high school students and even middle school students to learn about democracy by doing democracy. And those kids can be involved with creating proposals of working on the delegate, um, there are these called these budget delegates to help to develop the proposals into full-fledged uh, parts on the ballot or uh, items on the ballot, and then they can vote. If they're, a, they just got to, you just got to show you that you're a resident of the district. So you can even be unhoused. You can even not have a permanent place to live. Um, you can, uh, and you can vote in PB. You just got to have some, some sort of residence. And there's other ways people can do that through having a library card or a city ID um, that shows where, what, you know, what neighborhood they're in. So it's got this openness to it in terms of who could participate, but it's also got this power to it, right? Where I'm not just voting on something that someone else chose for me or someone else created for me. I get to shape the ballot and I get to choose which which uh, ballot items to vote for. So that's participatory budgeting. And that's what we mean by participatory democracy, where people really do have this power. Uh, they have the ability to write the rules of the process. Someone else doesn't write it for them. They get to participate in what those rules look like. You can see that in worker cooperatives. You can see that in consumer cooperatives. You can see that in participatory budgeting. You can see that in land trusts where the people who are involved actually get to set the parameters for how the organization or the process is run. Um, there's a sharing of ownership uh, in PB. It's uh, the ownership of the money. It's in a worker co-op, it's the ownership of the firm. In a consumer co-op, it's the ownership of the business. You can decide what to do with the profits, how that's reinvested. You also have to develop capabilities, right? Because it's a lot of people don't understand how a budget works. This is one of the great things about PB. You learn how the city budget works. So you're developing capabilities, you're sharing authority and how decisions are made, and then you're interconnecting with others who share these values or, or want to want to participate. So it's very inclusive and expansive in that. So that's how I understand participatory democracy. There's that collective determination where we're getting together, writing the rules together, shaping the process. We teach each other, we educate each other, we get other people to educate us about how to do this. We share authority, and then we're constantly interconnecting to spread the process. Well, and that is where we're heading, hopefully, in your mind. Part of the changing logic is uh, a more expansive conception of a, a democratic city. Absolutely, and I think you'll see um, this, especially in climate, it's really necessary for folks in the different neighborhoods to really bring their needs and ideas to be able to shape how the city's responding to climate. I'm not certainly advocating participatory democracy on every issue. Uh, I think, and some people are more passionate about some than others. 
And we want to make sure that people have these multiple venues where they can participate in a genuine way and not just yell at a hearing, right? Right now, you got to yell at a hearing. You may comment on something you know, online, uh, or you may just call your, your local elected official or your agency. But there needs to be a much more collaborative, sustained process. I think New Yorkers, uh, over the last couple of years, you definitely see the interest in climate and sustainability issues, and you definitely see the interest in food. Uh, this is something we didn't get into. I know you've done another uh, interview uh, and podcast on food with um, Samantha Knoll. With Samantha Knoll, absolutely, Professor Knoll, and and she's got great uh, you know insights in that area, and that's something that I'm very interested in as well. And one of the things that you know, talking to New Yorkers over the last two years with COVID, is people want PB for food to be able to make proposals for their neighborhood, um, to be able to to grow their own food, store fresh food, have a community kitchen, have a local delivery service that's much more affordable. Um, really fascinating about how, you know, so much action around the food space um, because of the, you know, the incredible um, economic disruption of COVID and, and people going hungry in, our, in the wealthiest city in the world, right? Which is inexcusable, mind-boggling, makes no sense. And so I think that, you know, that's a couple, I think you want to, you're going to see a lot of public participation, the possibilities for public participation about how we use the street, about how we use the street, right? That's something that people got to be involved with. So food, climate resilience, the street, these are all areas where the public would show up and participate in a, in a robust way if you gave them a real process, like PB or something similar. I definitely recommend uh, people, if they haven't heard it, to to check out that uh, episode on food justice with Samantha Knoll. But also um, a second part of that conversation was with uh, Stephen Grimaldi, who is the executive director of the New York Common Pantry. And he was speaking oh. to um, how the Common Pantry has worked through the pandemic and some of the, the particular issues on the ground here in the city. Um, right. with respect to food justice. Um, Mike Metzer, this has been wonderful. It's been so much of what I hope for, and I feel we're going to have to have you back <laughs> at some point uh, and talk about many of the things we didn't get to talk about or to revisit some of these things. So uh, again, I want to thank you very much for uh, for being on the pod here, and um, good luck with uh, your work. Continue. Thanks for the opportunity. Great to talk. And yeah, conversations to, to work. More is coming for sure to be discussed. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. So that'll do it for this week's episode. For those who want to find out more about Michael Menser's work, you can check him out at michaelmenser.info. And please let us know what you think of what we're doing here. You can follow us on Twitter at PhilosophyNYC. You can follow me at J.S. Beal. Let us know what you think about this episode, suggest future episodes. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.